In Jesus' second sermon, the Sermon for Kingdom Servants, his goal is to equip his disciples with the necessary precepts and principles for serving. In Matthew 10, 1-4, he commissioned, certified, and confirmed his disciples as servants. And notably, those 12 men served King Jesus as his apostles. The Greek term apostle, apostolos, is the equivalent of the Hebrew term prophet, shelah. It refers to someone who is a divinely commissioned representative who conveys a message. Those commissioned to speak and act on behalf of the one who sent them act like an ambassador. As noted previously, the modern missionary would be the equivalent of an apostle. Now, apostleship is not the only area of service to the Lord. Jesus commissions his disciples to serve as prophets or itinerant preachers, evangelists, pastor teachers, bishops, deacons, deaconesses, to name a few. Now, how do you know what area of service King Jesus has called you? Well, let me set forth three principles that can help you determine the general, if not particular, area of service. Three principles to help you determine the general, if not particular, area of service. Number one, you must examine the desire of your heart. You must examine the desire of your heart. Paul declares in 1 Timothy 3, 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. The disciple seeking God's will for where to serve him will often find that he will place a desire within them for that service. Now, has God placed a particular desire in your heart for service? Number two, you must consider the assessment of spiritually mature believers. You must consider the assessment of spiritually mature believers. Listen, our hearts are desperately wicked. And therefore, it's necessary to check our desires. Other spiritually mature people can see things about ourselves to which we may be blind. And furthermore, those who know us well can determine whether we would function well in a particular field of ministry. The various biblical qualifications for biblical servants should be consulted, such as Acts 6, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapters 1 and 2. So, number one, examine the desire of your heart. Number two, consider the assessment of spiritually mature believers. And number three, you must look for opportunities or open doors to serve. You must look for opportunities or open doors to serve. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, for a wide door for effective service is open to me. If the desire for a particular field of service is from God, he will present you opportunities to engage in that field of service. Now, it must also be emphasized that serving is not voluntary. It is the duty of every disciple. It is your duty to serve the king. Scripture knows nothing of a disciple who is not serving King Jesus. Additionally, all service is to be performed under the umbrella of a local church. Anyone, any genuine disciple not regularly attending a local church cannot serve the Lord. And any disciple not serving the Lord are in disobedience to their king. Now notice Matthew 10, 5. It states, these 12 Jesus sent out. According to the corollary passage in Mark 6, 7, Jesus summoned Proskaleo, the 12, and began to send them out in pairs. 
The verb summon, proskaleo, is the same as in Matthew 10.1. It indicates Jesus' commission of the twelve. And notice that the twelve were sent out in pairs. Matthew 10.2-4 presents the pairs. Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John, Philip, and Bartholomew, and Nathaniel, Thomas, Didymus, and Matthew, Levi, James, the younger, and Thaddeus, Judas, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. And so when Jesus sent out the 70 in Luke 10, he also sent them out in pairs. Throughout the book of Acts, kingdom servants served in pairs. Consider the example of Peter and John, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Mark, Silas and Paul, Paul and Timothy, to name a few. Jesus' purpose in sending them out in pairs was threefold. Number one, serving in pairs provides companionship. Serving in pairs provides companionship. Loneliness, especially in the Lord's service, exposes many to unhealthy desires, discouragements, and depression. By sending them out in pairs, the disciples could encourage, exhort, and admonish one another. Number two, serving in pairs protects disciples from burnout. Serving in pairs protects them from burnout. Listen, all the work of ministry should not fall upon one person. Taking turns preaching and serving mitigated fatigue and reduced stress and pressure. And number three, serving in pairs conform to the testimony principle of the Hebrew Scriptures. Again, serving in pairs conforms to the testimony principle of the Hebrew Scriptures. Deuteronomy 19.15 states, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. By going out in pairs, the message proclaimed will be confirmed or validated as genuine. Again, let's note Matthew 10.5. It states that Jesus sent the twelve out after instructing them. After instructing them. The verb instructing, parangalo, is a unique verb that has several connotations. It's a military term describing the command of an officer to those under his command. It's a legal term used to subpoena someone to appear in court. It's an ethical term referring to a binding moral obligation. You will notice that there is a requirement to obey the instruction or command in each of the usages of this verb. Therefore, having commissioned, certified, and confirmed the disciples as servants, Jesus now commands the apostles what to do. In doing so, Jesus lays out the tasks of kingdom servants in Matthew 10, 5-15. The tasks of kingdom servants, Matthew 10, 5-15. And we will see that servants must perform the tasks commanded of them by their king. The first task of kingdom servants is to serve where sent. Serve where sent, Matthew 10, 5-6. Let's read it. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Here's the instruction. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice what he commands. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Now the term way, hodas, refers to a place or territory. In other words, the apostles were not to go to any Gentile inhabited territories. You'll recall that Galilee is comprised of two areas, Galilee of the Jews and Galilee of the Gentiles. 
As well, they were forbidden from going into any Samaritan cities. Samaria was located south of Galilee. Hence, Jesus restricted them from going to any Galilean Gentile cities or the cities of Samaria. Instead of going to the Samaritans or Gentiles, Jesus commands them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this image of the lost sheep of the house of Israel evokes the words of the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 6 says, My people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. Ezekiel 34 and verse 6 says, My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. You see, these false prophets and false religious leaders had arisen in Israel who were bad shepherds and who led the people away from God into idolatry. As a result, Israel was scattered amongst the nations. First, they were scattered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. and later by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Now, liberal scholars would have you believe that Jesus' command here was racially motivated. Now, let us be clear that such a premise is a blatant attack on his deity. Racism is sin. And since Jesus was God, he was sinless. Much of Jesus' ministry also took place in Galilee, even Galilee of the Gentiles. He healed and blessed many Gentiles. As well, Jesus deliberately traveled through Samaria in order to preach the gospel to them. And every time Jesus ministered to Gentiles during his earthly ministry, it was in anticipation of blessing the whole world with the gospel. You will recall in his final commission to his disciples, to us, Jesus commanded to make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19. Indeed, God's plan of redemption was global, as evidenced all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, Yahweh promised Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That promised blessing was redemption from sin through the Jewish Messiah. Furthermore, when some Jews were jealous that Gentiles were also being offered the gospel of the kingdom, Paul and Barnabas explained that this was God's plan for Israel to share the light of the gospel with the Gentiles as foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Quoting Isaiah 42, 6 and Isaiah 49, verse 6, Paul and Barnabas state in Acts 13, 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. You see, this restriction to preach only to Israel was temporary. Why then did Jesus restrict the apostle service? First, Jesus restricted their service because of God's plan. Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews. In other words, salvation must first go to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Indeed, this is the pattern established by King Jesus. Before his final ascension into heaven, Jesus commanded the disciples in Acts 1.8, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Paul's ministry followed that pattern. Every time he entered a new city, Paul began his ministry in the synagogue. Check out Acts 9.20, Acts 13.5, Acts 18.4, Acts 19.8. Paul explains in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, 
and also to the Greek or the Gentile. Friends, God's plan must be done in God's way. He always intended to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But it must come to them by the Jews. The church's missions program should follow this biblical pattern to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. Nowhere in Scripture has God ever changed this pattern. As Barney Kasdan states, the neglect of Jewish ministry and outreach in the modern church is out of balance and has brought spiritual poverty that God never intended. Second, why did Jesus restrict the apostles' service? He restricted their service because they were unqualified for cross-cultural witnessing. They were unqualified for cross-cultural witnessing. See, on the one hand, these men were inexperienced in sharing the gospel. And so before sharing the gospel across cultural boundaries, one should be equipped to share it within their own culture. On the other hand, you'll recall that these men had deep-seated prejudice against all non-Jews. In the case of Peter, it took an extraordinary vision from the Lord himself to be convinced to repent of his prejudice. You can check that out in Acts chapter 10. And friends, if you're harboring some form of prejudice, I challenge you, I charge you to follow Peter's example and repent of this putrid sin. Third, why did Jesus restrict their service? He restricted the apostles' service to help them focus on the specific service task before them. He wanted to help them focus on the specific service task before them. Without a defined area of service upon which to focus, kingdom servants will flounder, and the task of service will be left undone. Even Jesus' ministry was limited. Though he did share the gospel on several occasions with Samaritans and Gentiles, the primary focus of his ministry was on the Jews. As he explained to the Gentile woman in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, too often, believers and churches are so multifocused that we lose sight of our true calling. Understand that every one of us is called to serve. But not every one of us has been called to the same service. Recall the words of Ephesians 4.11. He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. You see, Jesus did not commission all to serve as apostles, nor all to serve as prophets, nor all to serve as evangelists, nor all to serve as pastors and teachers. Whatever area God has called you to serve, you ought to serve in that area. Of course, I need to ask the question, are you serving? Before we worry about the area of service, you need to be concerned with, are you serving? Again, the Lord doesn't know anything about disciples who aren't serving. And if you are serving, are you serving in the area he has called you? Listen, if we try to serve in areas we are not equipped, we will find ourselves discouraged and defeated. Believer, you need to serve where your king has sent you. Additionally, every local church 
has been tasked to evangelize the lost, educate the saved, and exalt God. However, God does not expect churches to accomplish those tasks similarly. What do I mean? Well, let me give you an example of the Church of Antioch. The Church of Antioch was particularly evangelistic or mission-minded. Evangelism or mission was where God dictated their particular focus. Now, that is not to say that they did not educate the saved and exalt God. They most certainly did. But look at the church of Ephesus. They were educationally minded. Paul spent three years training men and women for ministry in the school of Tyrannus. Again, that does not imply that the Ephesus church did not evangelize or exalt God. They certainly did, but their God-directed focus was on educating the saints. The point is that a church must determine their God-directed focus and then do what God has tasked them to do. And a church that fails to serve where they are sent is doomed. So the first task of kingdom servants is to serve where sent. And the second task of kingdom servants is to preach the gospel in Matthew 10, 7. Preach the gospel. As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that verb, as you go, peruomai, refers to going from one place to the next. And the point is that regardless of where sent, all kingdom servants are to preach caruso, or announce an important message. And the object of that message is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Matthew distills the gospel message down to this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. However, one needs only to look at the message of Jesus to reconstruct the entire statement. Matthew 4, 17 declares from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 14 to 15 confirms that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so we ask, how does the kingdom of heaven at hand, summarize the gospel. Well, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God refers to the domain of God's sovereign lordship. That the kingdom is at hand, a gizo, or approaching, implies that his judgment is coming. You see, when Yahweh establishes his kingdom on earth, he will judge. And those righteous will be welcomed into the kingdom, while those considered unrighteous will be cast into hell. Knowing that God's judgment is drawing near, what must we do? We must repent and believe in the gospel. And again, so we're clear, let's review. Repentance is confessing, forsaking, loathing sin, and turning to God. Belief or faith in the gospel is trusting in a person and what he has done. That person is God's Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, you must place your faith in the one who is the Son of God, Savior and Sovereign of humanity. And what has God, the Savior and Sovereign, done? According to 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, He died for our sins, was buried, and raised on the third day. Repentance and faith result in professing Jesus as Lord and submitting to His Lordship. And so if I may, let me summarize the gospel message in six statements. Six simple statements to help you remember what the gospel message is. Number one, every person is a sinner. Number two, sinners are damned to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. 
Number three, God provides his son as savior to rescue people from sin and eternal damnation. Number four, Jesus died and shed his blood to pay the penalty of humanity's sin. He was buried and rose again from the dead on the third day, according to the scripture. That's known as the gospel. And number five, all who repent of their sin and believe the gospel will be saved. And number six, those who are saved profess Jesus as Lord and submit to his lordship. Let me stress, the task of preaching the gospel is not optional or voluntary. It is a command and the duty of every kingdom servant. And so I ask, not only are you serving where you're sent, but are you preaching the gospel? The third task of kingdom servants is to perform deeds of compassion in Matthew 10, 8. Perform deeds of compassion. Verse 8 says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Now in verse 1, Matthew reported that Jesus gave the apostles authorities over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. These signs and wonders were their credentials that certified these men and their message were from God. Doctors, lawyers, academics, and other professionals display their credentials, diplomas, titles, letters, to certify their qualifications to practice their field of study. In much the same way, Jesus commands kingdom servants to display their credentials. The twelve apostles were given four credentials that prove they were from God and qualified to preach the gospel. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And these four signs would identify Jesus' servants with his kingdom. Isaiah prophesied that when God's kingdom comes, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Isaiah 35, 5-6. After John the baptizer was imprisoned and began to question whether Jesus was the messianic king, Jesus sent word to him in Matthew eleven five, saying, The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Note that the credentials Jesus presented to John are identical to the credentials his apostles were to display. As Paul later confirms in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, these deeds of compassion you'll note here, were to be performed with no strings attached. Jesus says, freely you received, freely give. Jesus gifted the apostles the authority to perform these deeds of compassion. They were not purchased, bartered, or traded. And as such, kingdom servants should perform deeds of compassion unselfishly. Now, were you performing deeds of compassion? That's the first question you need to ask yourself. And if you are, great, but... Are you doing it unselfishly? Or are you doing it to receive the praise of men or some other notoriety? You see, and as in Jesus' day and so too today, there are many charlatans posing as disciples, yet using the ministry to take advantage of the desperate and needy. How often have these charlatans hawked their wares in the name of Christ? They'll promise you a miracle if you send them money. They refer to money as seeds and promise the spiritually immature that if they send their seeds to them, they're making a spiritual investment, then God will reward them with a financial windfall or a miraculous healing. 
You know, it's unsurprising those duped by these charlatans continue to get poorer and continue to get sicker. May these charlatans be damned! With the completion of the New Testament, these signs and wonders ceased. However, the principle of compassion behind these deeds has not ceased. Without a doubt, rescuing people from disease, death, and demon possession are deeds of compassion. And while present-day kingdom servants cannot heal the sick through supernatural miracles, you and I can compassionately minister to the sick and infirmed. In fact, besides the meaning to cure disease, the verb heal, therapuo, can be rendered as caring for the sick or serving those in need. If you show little compassion for those in need, you have missed the mark of being a kingdom servant. Modern kingdom servants also cannot raise the dead or cast out demons. However, when we preach the gospel, we are raising individuals from spiritual death and we are setting them free from demonic possession. Let's make sure we're showing, performing deeds of compassion. The fourth task of kingdom servants is to rely on God's provisions in Matthew 10, 9 to 10. Rely on God's provisions. Verse 9, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Rely on God's provision. Now you'll notice here before considering what Jesus prohibited, we need to establish a fact. These restrictions were temporary and related to this particular service. Later in Luke 22, 35 to 36, Jesus says, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. And so, believer, we must be very careful not to take the specifics of this command here in Matthew 10, 9, and 10 and apply it to service or ministry today. However, the principle that Jesus teaches here that kingdom servants must rely on God's provision can be transferred to today's kingdom servants. Let's notice first that Jesus says, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Gold, silver, and copper depicts the various coinage employed during the first century A.D. This prohibition forbid the apostles from taking any money with them. Second, Jesus says, do not bring a bag for your journey. Now the bag, pira, is a leather sack used to carry food. Sometimes this sack could be used for begging. The apostles were not only forbidden from taking any food with them, but also from taking a sack that could be used for begging. The point was God would provide for their needs. His servants were not to beg for provisions. Third, Jesus says, do not bring even two coats or sandals or a staff. The coats, ketan, refers to an inner garment worn against the body under the robe. And please note that Jesus is not forbidding them from wearing an undergarment or sandals, nor did Jesus prohibit them from taking a staff. The essential term is to, duo. The prohibition is against taking an extra undergarment, an extra pair of sandals, or an extra staff. The corollary passage in Mark 6, 8, and 9 clarifies this prohibition. 
Mark records that Jesus instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere one staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. His point was that they should take only minimum clothing and supplies because God would provide what they needed. Amid tasking them with relying upon God's provision, Jesus set forth a precept. He says the worker is worthy of his support. Support refers to a stipend or wage paid to a laborer for service rendered. The twelve apostles did not need to worry about extra provisions. Jesus would see that they were paid for their service. Therefore, kingdom servant, you must rely on God's provisions. Paul also draws upon this precept in 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, where he tells Timothy, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now Paul enjoins Jesus' precept here to the teaching of the Torah, specifically Deuteronomy 25.4. Under God's law, oxen could enjoy the grain they were threshing. A muzzle would prohibit them from such. Those committed to full-time ministry rely solely upon God for their provision. God has provided them through the people sitting under their teaching and preaching. And failure to provide for them is equivalent to muzzling an ox in the middle of threshing. In other words, if oxen can enjoy the fruit of their labor, how much more should those who labor tirelessly in God's word enjoy the fruit of their labor? Paul's point is that the church is responsible for paying elders who labor full-time in teaching and preaching God's word. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians 9.14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And their pay is the equivalent of double honor. In other words, God's people don't simply provide the base minimum, but are to be generous in providing for those in ministry as God is blessed so they can serve freely. Now, the fifth task of kingdom servants is to identify those receptive to the gospel. Identify those receptive to the gospel. Matthew chapter 10, verse 11 to 15. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, this task of identifying those receptive to the gospel follows a pattern found in Numbers chapter 13. Moses sends the 12 spies into the land of promise. The 12 spies were tasked, among other things, with determining whether the people who live in the land are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. Numbers 13, 18. Here Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, two by two, into the various Jewish cities of Galilee to scout out the receptiveness to Jesus' message. And so upon entering a city or village, the apostles were to inquire who is worthy in it. Inquire. Exitazo, an imperative, conveying the idea of diligently verifying something to be true. The term worthy, axios, means weighty and refers to being proper or respectable. That is, they were to look for individuals with good reputations or characters beyond question. 
Now, more than likely, the apostles were looking for someone ready to respond to Jesus' message. And no doubt, when they entered a city, they would have initially preached their message in the marketplace. And based on the responses to their message, they would have been able to begin to determine who was worthy. And so when they identified a person of good reputation, they were to stay at his house. Now, there's at least two reasons that they were to stay at a reputable person's private home and not public lodging. First, most public inns of the day were dens of prostitution and debauchery. And so kingdom servants need to protect their reputation and abstain from every form or appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22. That's still for us today. Second, if the individual's character were unquestionable, the apostles would not need to worry whether they'd be fed or lose their lodging. Furthermore, Jesus said they were to stay in the worthy person's home until they leave that city. Now, why? Why are they to stay there? Number, I'll give you three reasons. Number one, this home was to be the base of operations in the city. Two, the hospitality of the host would be their payment for service rendered to King Jesus. The corollary passage in Luke 10, 7 confirms that. It says, stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Third, by looking for better lodging, the apostles could offend the host, damage their testimony, and potentially close the door of the gospel. Great lesson for us that we not do anything that would offend and damage our testimony and close a door for the gospel. Next, after setting up shop in the home of the worthy host, the apostles would go to house to house, door to door, sharing the gospel. Now, I need you to notice here that the house in verse 12 is not the home the apostles were lodging. Upon entering each home, the apostles were to give it your greeting. Now, the Jewish greeting was not hello, but a blessing or wish for peace, worded as shalom lecha or shalom alakim, peace to you all. This peace blessing conveyed the idea of complete good health on one's body, mind, and soul. Now, the house that received the apostles' message was deemed worthy, again, oxios. In this case, the blessing of peace could be confirmed. Unfortunately, however, Jesus warns that some might reject the gospel. And in this case, the apostles are to take back their blessing of peace. And furthermore, as they left the homes of those who rejected the gospel, they were to shake the dust off their feet. Now, this symbolic act of shaking the dust off one's feet was done by Jewish people returning to a Jewish city from a Gentile city. The idea was that the dust from a pagan city would profane the Jewish towns or render the people ritually unclean. In essence, Jesus told the apostles to treat those who reject the gospel message as unholy pagans, treating those who reject the gospel as unholy pagans, continued to be the practice of the New Testament church. We see it in Acts 13, 51. We see it in Acts 18, 6. And so Jesus concludes by announcing damnation upon those individuals or cities who reject the gospel. He says, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Friends, rejecting the gospel is a more severe sin than the sinful debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as such, the eternal damnation leveled upon those who reject the gospel will be far worse than the eternal damnation leveled upon the peoples of Sodom and Gomorrah. Kingdom servants, you are duty-bound to look for those receptive to the gospel. The gospel is so critical 
that we must not waste time and energy on those who reject it. Now, let's underscore the text does not imply that if someone does not immediately receive the gospel, they should be rejected. The point is that we are to focus on those who are receptive. And to be honest, after a time of continual opposition and reject it, it is also time to treat them accordingly as unregenerate pagans. Continue to pray for them, but take the gospel to those who are open and receptive to it. All kingdom citizens are kingdom servants. And King Jesus has tasked you, his servants, to serve where you're sent, to preach the gospel, to perform deeds of compassion, to rely on God's provision, and identify those receptive to the gospel. Does that describe you? Are you doing those tasks? These tasks are, the pri- are your primary duty, kingdom servant. They are not merely for those in full-time ministry or serving in foreign fields. They are for all of us as kingdom citizens. Jesus says in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus' prayer there was for his disciples to step up and be servants. He has provided us the task of servanthood. And so I ask you, will you answer his prayer? Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne by means of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We lift you up as the sovereign one. We submit ourselves to you as your servants. Lord God, we come to do your will. We come to serve you. And as your servants, we are utterly dependent on you. Forgive us for those times of rebellion, those times when we did not submit to you. Furthermore, Lord, forgive us for those times we have failed to do your will. I ask, Father, that you might protect us as your servants, as we serve you, as we go out into the fields ready for harvest, and do your will. And I pray that all we do in service to you would give you glory. And to this I pray, amen.